0: Last week we were celebrating the great triumph of our faith, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the new life we can have in relationship with God for all who believe in it. That was last, that was last weekend. The excitement of all of that, of Easter, might already be wearing off a little bit. The days are getting a bit darker, a bit colder, a bit wetter, We've seen the wind whipping away at the trees and the water. We've felt the rain those of us who heard the rain last night. I think it rained on this, sh- this side of the river as well as my side. And it's one thing to know the joy of the resurrection, and another to be facing a long stretch of shortening days and chilly mornings. It's a bit like after Christmas. I think this time after Easter can feel like a little bit of a, a little bit of a letdown, a bit of an anticlimax. Many, many generations of disciples have come and gone since that first Easter. And the church has grown into a unique entity made up of all people groups, male and female, young and old, educated and and uneducated, rich and poor, healthy and sick, well-connected and socially outcast. With one single entrance qualification, faith in Jesus as the son of God who rose physically from death three days after his public execution. And together, the church forms a family like no other. Family is where we should be known, accepted, where our absences are noticed, where our lives connect with others. We all need family. And the church, God's family, is where God teaches us about being in relationship with Him and with each other. It's where the world sees what life should look like connected to God. It should be the demonstration of God's work reconciling us to him and to each other. The proof that Jesus didn't die for nothing. That what we celebrated last week wasn't just a random event for a few, but one which came to influence the course of human history. Now this psalm, Psalm 133, which I would um, recommend you perhaps find in your church Bibles. I don't know if the pages are the same here. Chris did tell me during the week which page it was, but I've forgotten. Say again, 503, Psalm 133 is one of a set of songs ascribed to David, which would have been sung or said on the way up to Jerusalem for one of the religious festivals. It's one of the songs for the road, if you like, lyrics spoken or sung in transit to a holy place. Not quite car karaoke, because they didn't have that then, but sort of a soundtrack to set the scene, to encourage and to strengthen the pilgrims on their way and it's all about family unity. And it tells us three things about how God sees and responds to family unity. Now from our vantage point, we live on the other side of the resurrection and the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit, and we have the New Testament. We can see how this psalm helps us to understand how important unity is for the family of God, for those who believe in Christ as the reconciler of mankind to God. So this psalm tells us that for God, unity is a good thing that sets the family apart and releases God's special blessing. So let's have a look at verse 1 together. How good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. So it's basically saying, isn't it amazing when everyone gets along? Well, yes, of course it is. It's not exactly world-shattering news, is it? hardly worth mentioning, really. But is it? Do we all dwell together in unity? The way it's written here implies that it's exceptional rather than normal, worthy of note. We don't have to dig deep to find examples of sibling strife, do we? Yes, I have been reading spare, as you know. So, of course, Harry and William do come to mind. But there's also Jacob and Esau. And David, the writer of this son, knew all about family strife, as his own family was riven with it. Tension between siblings goes back to Cain and Abel. And closer to home, I'm sure we've all seen and experienced rivalry between siblings for attention, for the approval of our parents, for the last tim-tam, whatever it might be. That's normal. Often the ones we're closest to are the ones we fall out with the most. Speaking as a parent, it is a beautiful thing when our children are all getting along, sometimes for several minutes at a time. And when you're getting along with people, it's, a, it's actually a really good feeling, isn't it? So if we're family, then spiritually speaking, we are all siblings as Christians, all members of the family of God. And it's a big family, 2.2 billion people if Wikipedia is to be believed. And joining God's family is not a matter of birthright, but belief. John says in one, John, John 1, verse 12, that to all who received him, him being Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, not born of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So we are brothers and sisters. When Jesus taught his followers how to pray, he made that clear from the beginning. When you pray our Father, you are linking yourself with every believer in existence through your faith in Christ. There's something good and pleasant about living in unity. It is a guiltless pleasure. It's actually a wonderful thing to achieve harmony within a family and more especially within the family of God. But it's important to understand what our unity is in. It's not in the idea of unity. The unity of the church is in Jesus Christ through our shared belief in his divinity, in what he said, in what he did, in his death for our sins and his resurrection. So we see that unity is good and God loves it. But what's so great about it? Well, come with me to verse 2 and we'll see that genuine unity sets us apart as God's people. It's tangible evidence of God at work in the world. Verse 2 says, It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on Aaron's beard, running down running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's a bit of an icky picture, isn't it? But this is a picture of anointing. Now, Anointing was the practice of smearing oil on something or someone to set it aside for a special purpose. Aaron, Moses' brother, and the first of the priests of Israel was anointed for his sacred duty, and so was every priest after him. After a vision of heaven, Jacob anointed the stone he'd used for a pillow, turning it into an altar. The prophet Samuel anointed David king while he was still a young boy, marking him out for his role years in advance. Even the word Messiah means anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one, announced his arrival at the beginning of Mark's gospel by reading from his scripture, Isaiah 61, which says, The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And so on. And then he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Anointing is significant. It carries the idea of being set apart for a particular purpose, for God's purposes. So when verse 2 describes the effect of unity, it's describing more than smearing oil on the forehead of the priest. Notice the way it's written. Running down. Poured on the head. Running down on the beard. Running down on Aaron's beard. Down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the cup has been upturned on his head. Can you picture it? This thick oil flowing down over his head, onto his beard. Not that I have one. Imagine I have a beard, onto my beard, to the edge of the robes. Some translations think it's the, the collar as this translation here. Some translations think it's to the, very, the hem of his robe. Either way, it's a lot of oil. It's a lot of oil. It's not a little dab here and there. It's a soaking. It's a very visible, obvious setting apart. Unity in the family of God is like the anointing of the priest. It sets the family apart. It is very visible. It is very obvious. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel are in a way a nation of priests, a demonstration to other nations of God's power, to favour and protect and prosper a people of his own choosing, not because they're special, but because he chooses to. In the New Testament, Peter picks up this idea of the anointing and makes it part of our identity as Christians. He says in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Our unity in Christ sets us apart to present and proclaim Jesus in the world. Surely this is what we're all about, isn't it? Presenting and representing Christ? If the world is to see the church and see Christ, then unity is not optional, it is essential. But unity is not uniformity. It can't mean that we all agree on everything or we simply ignore our differences. Correct teaching or doctrine is important, and please pull me or Chris up at any point if you think we're going off. Especially me. But, and Scripture warns us to be alert to false teaching. Paul himself, in his letter to the Philippians, describes his own approach to the laws and rules that characterised his life before conversion and how he now rejects them. But in verse 3 of Philippians, sorry, in chapter 3 of Philippians, in verse 3, he says. If on some matter you think differently, God will make this plain to you. He's not talking about whether Jesus is Lord. He's speaking about secondary matters. And again, in Romans 14, Paul offers advice for dealing with different views on how to deal with the food offered to, offered to idols, which was a problem that they were having at the time. And he clearly disagrees with those who prefer to abstain, referring to them as the weaker brother. But he says, do not judge the weak brother and do nothing to undermine his faith. So following Paul, we can see that unity can be seen as humble agreement about common ground and keeping first things first, allowing for diversity of understanding, trusting God in each other to bring us all together. Sounds good, doesn't it? So why aren't we doing it? Because it's really difficult. It's difficult because we don't, want to be, we don't want to be led astray by aligning ourselves with people who have some what we think are false beliefs or perspectives that we don't share. But if Jesus prays for us to be one, as he does in John 17, which we'll be looking at later this year, we can trust God to bring us all into line. Unity is difficult because it's just difficult. We want things our own way. We don't want to need to bend or compromise. I mean, there are days when I find unity very easy. I don't argue, don't interrupt, don't let myself get irritated. And then I get out of bed, and it's all downhill from there. It would be much easier to get along if you could just do unity long distance, wouldn't it? Or online. Hello, online friends. Proximity creates tension. We all like things the way we like them. We have different ideas about how to do things. There is enough variety, I'm sure, of opinion, preference and taste just in this room to keep us in arguments for years if we wanted to, but that's not what we're about. We're called to closeness, to relationship, to vulnerability, to messy, sometimes inconvenient, sacrificial, unselfish love, to wash each other's feet. In Ephesians 4, verse 2, Paul writes, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Be humble and completely gentle. Sorry, be completely humble and gentle, Paul says. Now, this comes more easily to some of us than others. It looks and seems weak. It certainly doesn't impress the world, which prizes assertiveness and displays of strength. Be patient, Paul says, bearing with one another in love. And do your best to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Really? Do we have to? Well, that's what Paul's suggesting that we do. Not just here, but throughout his letters. He gives plenty of good but challenging advice like this. In fact, once you get past the Gospels, most of the content of the letters in the New Testament are practical instructions about getting along so we can show Christ to the world. It's a really tough calling, but it will make us look more and more like Christ. Jesus himself prioritises unity. In his prayer in John 17, he prays for the same unity for the church as exists between himself and the Father, Unity is the evidence that Jesus was himself sent by God and that the church is loved as Jesus is loved. It's not optional. It's essential. But with so many disagreements and ways of seeing, how can we do it? Well, you won't be surprised to hear me say that we can only do it with the help of Jesus, who is our point of connection, who is the source and the cause of our unity. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that as we come to Jesus, the living stone, we also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And as we trust in him, we will never be put to shame. So I have some questions for us. I've been thinking about these a lot over the last week. Can we apply this call to unity by trusting in Christ, who is present in every believer? Can we think of ourselves as the church and not the churches? Can we trust other Christian traditions and believe that Jesus is at work in them as he is in ours? Can we trust our infinitely creative God to show us infinitely creative ways to worship and honor him? Can we protect and defend our family, which is the whole church? Now, if you're here and you're not a believer, or you're just wondering about this whole Christian thing, you might be wondering what you might get out of this message. Well, I would suggest that this psalm suggests that unity is a really useful yardstick for identifying God's true family. However Christians may present in meeting styles or places or traditions or whatever, we should all be preaching Christ, the Son of God, crucified, risen, and the only way, humanity to be reconciled with god we should all bear that family likeness to jesus whatever you may think about him if you're checking out christian faith whatever church you visit should be doing this everything else that may go on there is well just everything else it's a quirk probably of history or interpretation or taste The church will draw people to God by living out his love in its life together. When we can do that, we will be blessed and we will be a blessing. This is what this psalm is telling us. The final verse of this psalm gives us a picture of mountain dew refreshing and enriching where it falls. I found this description of the actual mountain from a 19th century travelogue written by a British naturalist and clergyman called Henry Baker Tristram. He describes the dew as the most copious we ever experienced. It penetrated everywhere and saturated everything. The floor of our tent was soaked, our bed was covered with it, and dewdrops hung about everywhere. No wonder that the foot of Herman is clad with orchards and gardens of such marvelous fertility in this land of droughts, he writes. Wouldn't it be great for the church to be seen as a garden of marvelous fertility a source of health and life? Wouldn't it be great for the church to be known for loving the way Jesus did? I have seen great love here at Lindisfarne, I have to tell you. But there's always more. We can always grow more in this. Just imagine the harvest we could expect from even greater unity. Unity. We're told in this psalm that the blessing or reward of unity is eternal life. Eternal life is life that transcends human limitations. It is God's indestructible life in us. And our blessing is to experience that as we appreciate and recognize Jesus in our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we always agree with them or not. This psalm tells us that to God, unity is a good thing that sets the family apart and releases God's blessing. Let me end with this prayer which Jesus himself prayed for us. Father God, may we be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent Jesus and have loved us even as you have loved him. Amen.